Welcome to the Array of Faith podcast, where we shed light on the beauty of our spiritual and religious differences. I'm your host, J. Dana Trent, professor of world religions and critical thinking at Wake Tech Community College in Raleigh, North Carolina. The Array of Faith podcast began as a way of connecting with Wake Tech students and beyond during this difficult time of pandemic. As a teacher of almost 10 years, I enjoy bringing guest practitioners into my classroom to help shed light on textbook academic theory and give students an opportunity to connect with real life practitioners. Due to the pandemic, we've been unable to invite guest practitioners into the classroom. So we began Array of Faith as a way of connecting with their stories, experiences, and hopefully enriching students' lives in the process. Welcome to the Array of Faith podcast. I'm your host, J. Dana Trent, Professor of World Religions at Wake Tech, and I'm joined today by our producer, Goravani Das, who is also our co-host. Goravani Das is a devout Hindu practitioner, and if you'd like to hear more about his story, you can listen to episode one at arrayoffaith.org. Today for episode two, we are joined with, by a very special guest, Dr. Heather Sanderson. Dr. Sanderson is assistant professor, exercise and sports science in the Department of Nutrition, Health and Human Performance at Meredith College. Dr. Sanderson has been a practicing Buddhist for 10 years. She took her refuge vows in 2017 at the Kadamba Center in Raleigh, and her refuge name is Dejun Lamo, which means the cause of happiness goddess. What a beautiful name. Welcome, Dr. Sanderson. We're so glad you're here. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Oh, we are so delighted you're here. And students, just so you know, Dr. Sanderson usually uh, joins us in our in-class sessions. She and Gauravani Das actually know each other, which is another reason he's taking part in our podcast today. So Dr. Sanderson, welcome, and we are going to jump right in. Wonderful. Our first question for you and for our students is for you to tell us a bit about your spiritual and religious journey. Sure. Um, so I probably have a very unique story in the sense that um, my upbringing um, tends to be both from an interfaith uh, marriage as well as an upbringing of kind of uh, cultural awareness and, and um, diversity. So I, um, both of my parents, my mother is an Italian Catholic um, and grew up in a very strong Italian Catholic upbringing. Um, she's actually second generation Italian American. And so her grandparents came over and um, with that, all of her ancestors, everybody is Italian Catholic. And when the 1960s kind of came about and a little civil up uprest was happening, she really was not interested in continuing that same tradition of marrying an Italian Catholic. And so she ended up marrying um, my father, who is a uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. He was a, a Methodist. Um, and 
that I think was part of the, re well, part of the reason why she wanted to, to marry somebody outside the faith was she just wasn't really happy with the Catholic faith and, and all of the structure. I mean, she was going to um, mass multiple times a week and, um, and, uh, and um, confession, et cetera. But I think it was more so the rules. And especially as a woman um, in Catholicism, there's definitely way more rules. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that she kind of felt like, but let me find something else. And so my father um, being Methodist, um, she married him and decided to practice his faith um, and raise her, my sister and I in that faith as well, even though we still culturally in our family practiced Catholic traditions. Like we ate fish on Fridays and we went to midnight mass and other things. Um, my sister and I both have uh, saint names, uh, middle names, which are Catholic names. Um, so that's something else that she kind of continued with that tradition, I think that she wanted to hold on to. Um, but we moved around quite a bit. Every two to four years we moved. And when we would move to different cities and states, I've lived all over the United States um, because of my father's job, we would do church shopping. That's what we called it, it was church shopping. And, um, and so every new community um, we moved to, my parents would decide on Sunday was going to be a new church we're going to try out. And part of the, the trial period, if you will, was to see if my parents really felt a connection with the community, with the faith community, as well as the faith leaders. Um, most of the time we went to Methodist. Sometimes we ventured out to Presbyterian uh some, even lutheran i mean it was just kind of to be honest wherever they sort of felt like hey this sounds good this week let's go there um I, we didn't necessarily interestingly enough go beyond the christian faith is what i would probably say we kept kind of into that that realm but i think part of my upbringing was i was aware that the importance of finding a faith community and one that you can connect with was most important. I didn't have the hometown church community or faith community that so many people that I know do. Um, and so I think because of it, I was, e it was easier transition for me to open up my eyes to other faiths outside of the Christian faith. Um, so fast forward into my, you know, adulthood and, like probably many people lose sort of their connection to their faith. When I was in my 20s and 30s, things were more about my academic life and my career. And eventually in my 30s, I sort of came to this crossroads where once I had finished my doctoral degree, it was sort of like, well, what's next? And um, came in with this like, I don't know what to do with myself and, uh, you know, what sort of my purpose here and started to really ask some you know, uh, large, in-depth, meaningful life questions. And uh, I happened to come across a colleague or a friend of mine, who I should say became a friend of mine, uh, the Reverend Stephen Hawkins, who introduced me to Buddhism. He was a retired Presbyterian minister of 40 years, and I met him through his wife, who I worked with at UNC Greensboro, and he meditated, and he had a meditation group, and he would say, come join, and so I did, and I really kind of felt like, oh, this is kind of a new home for me. This is pretty interesting path. We would get together as a group at his house, and we would sit in a circle, and we would meditate for about an hour, just focusing on our breath. And then afterwards, we would have a potluck dinner, and then we would um, maybe talk about philosophy and religion and spirituality and all these different concepts. And I really felt 
home for that. That, that felt natural to me. Um, I remember at times trying to go back to church at that time and, and go back to my home base of Methodist church. And I was felt kind of worse leaving church than better. Um, I always felt criticized or judged or I felt bad about myself. But when I would go to Stemp's house, I always felt better. And I also learned more and wanted to explore more. And so that got me interested in learning more about the practice of meditation and mindfulness. Um, and then I actually took a course at Duke Integrated Medical Center on mindfulness. And one of the resources in there was the Kadapa Center in Raleigh. And once I moved to Raleigh, I went to the Kadapa Center, which is a Tibetan Buddhist center who we have two Geshulas, which are monks from um, Tibet actually, and joined there and found my home base for Buddhism there. Um, and so it's just sort of interestingly enough, what I would say is happened haphazardly. It wasn't like I initially was like, oh, what is Buddhism? And I want to reach out and see what it is. It was more of a, uh, I would say definitely like practitioner techniques that had nothing to do with a religion that I kept going into it further and further. Um, and then wanting to explore more and its origin of meditation and mindfulness that led me to Buddhism. Oh, that's an amazing story. Thank you so much. And there's a couple of threads that, that pop out at me in that story. Mm -hmm. I, I appreciate your sharing that your origin story, if you will, if you will, is based in Christianity, because I think that's an experience that a lot of our students have, mm -hmm. that their family of origin, just by virtue of being residents in North Carolina and the United States, might be Christian or Christian in name only or practicing Christian. And I really appreciate that you you demonstrated for us how circuitous and and long the journey can be, right? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Of searching, but it sounds like a key element for you is community, mm -hmm. searching for community. And that what sounds like it was a key element for your family too. When anytime you all would move, there was that, you know, quote unquote church shopping for mm -hmm. new community. And so I just find that fascinating that that was, that is, it sounds like that was the driving force throughout the entire journey. I think it absolutely was. Um, anytime you're kind of the new kid on the block in any, you know, community that you move to, you want to find your sort of people or, and, the, and I say your people, meaning the people that you can connect to and that you feel like a part of a family when you don't have your family there. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's one thing. The other that I really learned from one of the um, experiences, we, we ended up <laughs> the longest town we ever lived. Um, we we were very much connected into the church my parents were very very involved and we did a lot of service mm. and one of the things that i loved that the uh the the leaders of the church talked about was service not just be not to go and be missionaries and try to change people or evangelistic it was it was service just to do service to be good to the community no matter who they were and so one of the things i really learned from that methodist church was um, the importance of service and the value of helping out your your you know anybody who needs help um, and I find that to be also of the Buddhist practice too, is the practice of service and servitude. And so that was another thing in addition to community that I was looking for. 
is the aspect of service or um, a save, I guess it would be called. Yes, yeah. yeah. And that sort of brings us directly to the framework that we've been talking about in, in our World Religions course. And I also, before we get into the framework, I think students can absolutely resonate with the sense of, of longing for belonging, right? Mm-hmm. It's of searching for community, um, both the community that's going to challenge you, but also a community that feels like like home, a place right. where it's safe to have conversations and safe to have wondering. And it sounds like you, you you sincerely had that growing up, and then had a different version of that in your you know next iteration of faith life, if you will. And in in covering Buddhism, we apply this three-question framework to all the traditions that we study in world religions. And the framework from Oxford University Press is this, ultimate reality, way of life, and ultimate purpose. So broken down, it simply means where did we come from, how should we live, and where are we going? And you've talked a little bit about the how should we live part in terms of service, and you mentioned meditation, mindfulness, but I'd love to back up just a little bit in thinking about your transition from Christianity to Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could draw on some of the differences in ultimate reality in terms of humanity's source um, when it comes to Buddhism, and what are the key beliefs in Buddhism about the ultimate reality? Sure. Well, I think one of the things in my transition is I always struggled with the idea that, um, you know, we, we came from a, a place, if you will. Um, there was like an origin. Um, I struggled with also, I think part of it is because of my science background and, um, you know, I just kind of felt like there was not like this, um, I don't know, Adam and Eve story, if you will. Like I just, I couldn't wrap my head around it, if you will. So what I did when I was, and I remember this as a very young age, I really truly believed in the concept of reincarnation. Um, And the reason why I did was I remember thinking about the seasons of life, right? Or, Or just the seasons, you know, of the earth, you know, we've got, you know, winter, spring, summer, fall, and then spring, there's our kind of this rebirth, if you will. And then in fall, we start to see decay, and then winter is death. And you see this in nature, you know, you see this with plants and animals, and they go through this cycle of life. And I just wondered, why are we an exception? It didn't make any sense to me that we would be in any exception into this circle of life, so to speak. And so for me, um, from a from a Buddhist perspective, when we talk about the ultimate reality and where do we come from, we talk about the beginning of, uh, we, we talk about samsara, really, and the beginningless cycle of existence. It's this constant birth, life, aka suffering, um, death, and then rebirth, and this constant cycle. And it's beginningless, meaning that we can't, every time we try to pinpoint a time or place of when life began, there's always something before it. Mm-hmm. And so what's interesting about Buddhists, I think, is that we don't get so caught up into where did I come from? How did this begin? You know, we think more about what can I do now to change my course of action for my next life? And so um, a lot of times we sort of look at it as it's very cyclical and it will continue to be cyclical until I change my karmic path. Um, we also look at the three marks of existence. And so this is sort of where this gets into, there is suffering, right? Those four noble truths, 
there is suffering. There are causes of suffering, right? There's, I mean, right now in a pandemic, we've got anxiety and stress and we've got uh, uh, sickness and, and uh, illness and loss and job loss and all sorts of things that cause suffering. At the same time, you know, what the Buddha found was there is a sensation to suffering. There is a point where we can stop suffering and there's actually a pathway of the sensation to suffering. And so we know that these are these four noble truths. It's pretty easy. There is suffering. There is causes. We can stop it. And here's how we stop it. Um, but because of that, within the suffering, we're, uh, uh, within the three marks of existence, we also know that there's impermanence, right? change is constant. That is the one constant we know is change is constant. And even when we suffer, it's, you know, what does it say? Time heal all, heals all wounds. You hear that phrase all the time. Um, it's the same thing where everything is cyclical and it will end, you know, something begins and something will end. And so even joy and happiness has a limit over time frame. So one thing that we do know is that everything has has a time limit, right? It's impermanent. There is some, there is suffering. And then the last mark of existence is emptiness. And this is probably the most complex that many people have a difficult time wrapping around their head because we are so in our society and especially in the Western culture attached to our egos, attached to our identity. As soon as we are born, we are labeled with a name and um, a gender. And even I find it intriguing how nowadays, thankfully, gender identity is becoming more and more under, you know, people are learning more about it and it's becoming acceptable, but we're recognizing that I was born a certain way, but that does not mean that's who I am in my identity. And that's kind of that same concept where we don't believe in self. We have this thing where you are constantly evolving and changing the person who you were, at 10 years old is not who you are today. And in 10 years, you're still not going to be that person. Matter of fact, when we get done with this podcast, you're not going to be that same person you were. And so technically you can't really pinpoint and say, this is who you are because you're always evolving. Oh, that's beautifully said. Thank you. And that encompasses, you did such a great job explaining ultimate reality. No surprise there, but that, that the entire Buddha's Dharma, right? What we call mm -hmm. Dharma, which means yes. the teachings. The, the teachings, yes. Right. Yes. Okay. And that's so important to know that the Buddha himself is not God. Um, right. Of course, there's no creation story like the Abrahamic faiths that we're contrasting with your earlier mm -hmm. faith of origin, but mm -hmm. rather this Dharma, this um, the teachings. teachings about yeah. the cyclical nature of things and yes. suffering and the three marks of existence. Um, that in and of itself is the ultimate reality and then it informs the way we live and you touched a bit on that in terms of everything is changing mm -hmm. suffering is all around us can you give us some specific examples from way of life for you as a practicing buddhist you know what does it look like for you in your everyday life your way of life <laughs> sure well i think you know one of the things i didn't talk about was karma um, and so karma, 
um, we look at it is basically the result of our causes and conditions. And so when we look at past lives or current lives, why am I in the situation I am in? Why am I born this way in this um, society? Um, that tends to stem from past life karma. Um, and we, this is what's interesting is we don't really kind of look at it like I am going to, you know, woe is me for being in this situation. There's more of an accountability factor um, where we kind of say, okay, well, maybe in my past life, this is how I was. And so now here's what I'm dealing with. Um, and so the reason why I bring this up is, you know, I have to look at it like, okay, here I am, a female, Caucasian, Western society, um, you know, educated, what has gotten me here with all these different labels. Um, but then also, I also look at it internally from an emotional intelligence perspective. When I suffer from things like stress and anxiety, what are my triggers? You know, what kind of things get my anxiety up or get me stressed or get me upset? Um, we all have these kind of triggers or things that really kind of what I say, you know, poke the bear, push our buttons. Um, why is it that way? You know, and why is it certain things I can't let go? And so this is usually a Buddhist would say due to past karma. Mm. And what we try to do is we work on those through that eightfold path, the Bodhisattva path of uh, one is working on our minds and working on our thought processes, um, mm -hmm. but also thinking about the mindfulness and the concentration and effort. So there's, there's, there's um, eight different, you know, eightfold path, but within that ethics, mental discipline and wisdom are the three kind of underlying uh, or, uh, categories of the eightfold path. And so it takes the mental discipline to sit and really observe your thoughts, which is that mindfulness, um, and then recognize when you have those triggers and then redirect them like, okay, you know, and give ourselves some compassion, if you will. Um, and then the ethics, you know, right speech, right action, right livelihood. Um, you know, looking at my job, educating others. I feel like that's a pretty good livelihood. I'm not hurting anyone. Um, you know, I think the right action, you know, am, am I behaving correctly or some of my behaviors hurting myself or others? Uh, my speech, am I, you know, one of the worst things I do that I have to work on is being better at being self-compassionate and not, you know, criticizing myself or woulda, shoulda, couldas, right? So the right speech is sometimes self-talk mm. and having a better, uh, more compassionate way of being kinder to myself as well as to others, I think. Um, but these are some day-to-day -day examples that I have to do is recognizing those triggers recognizing when I'm going like, Ooh, like, wait, I just said what to myself right. and then rephrasing it and redirecting it. Um, and then eventually you come into what's called wisdom, which is where we have right understanding and right thought. And that eventually what happens is we change that, um, you know, that, that framework where we're no longer always sort of beating ourselves up where we are more compassionate and then we can, it's okay where we can kind of, give ourselves some flexibility when we do oops, um, but not, you know, beat ourselves down. And so there's one, it's a wonderful behavioral change um, process that I think that at least I try to do in my day to day um, and throughout my life. So that, that's what I like about it. 
That's great. And it's very practical. And I think it's something our students can resonate with too. You talked a lot about triggers, mm-hmm. meditation and self-love, self-compassion. I mean, these are really key way of life practices that mm-hmm. my sense is Buddhism is very inclusive and accessible to folks mm-hmm. who are even perhaps outside the practice of Buddhism. That's right. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting about it is we get so many people that come to our center and Geshe always says, you know, this is for everybody. We're not here to change anybody or make anybody Buddhist. And so many of the techniques and even what Buddha was sort of saying is it's very pragmatic and anybody can practice this. Um, And I think that's another reason why in our society, all of a sudden mindfulness and meditation and all of these different um, practices are becoming into the, the secular world. Like people are doing it all over and it's not necessarily from a Buddhist lens. And the thing about it is that's great because as a Buddhist, we wouldn't care whether or not, you know, we just want you to be happier. I mean, that's kind of what we would look at it as great. You know, one person that's happy and not suffering, um, you know, we would celebrate that for them. So I think um, that's why, yeah, you're, you're seeing more and more because it is so practitioner based. Right. And, and, and I really appreciate your saying that that's what, what a, that a Buddhist would have compassion and want that for a, another human being, whether they are a practicing Buddhist or not. Yes. And my question then too, leading into our third question of the framework is ultimate purpose. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like part of the goal of course is, is helping others, right? Helping others on this path. But for a Buddhist practitioner, what is the ultimate purpose? What is, what is your view of the ultimate goal? So what, from a Buddhist lens, you know, our ultimate goal is to become a Buddha. So it, you said it earlier, Buddha is not a God. Buddha did not ever think that, you know, Shakyamuni Buddha did not say, you know, here I am a God and, and follow me. Basically what he said was, oh my goodness, y'all, I figured it out. Like I figured out how to fix this problem. And then he says, and if you do these things too, you can learn as well. And then what do you do? Share it. And so essentially that's what our goal is, is to become this enlightened being where we can benefit other sentient beings and we can learn these skills, practice these skills, become enlightened. Um, and then, you know, once we get to become enlightened, then we can help others. And so essentially that's really what it is, is it's, it's something where I find it. So again, you go back to the Seva with the servitude mindset where yes, I want to help myself, but the ultimate goal is to also help others. Mm, so that, that's really the purpose of it at the end of the day. Okay. Um, it's not really a self-centered approach of like, I want to go to, you know, a place where I can see all my family and hang out and be in a very, um, you know, beautiful paradise environment. It has nothing to do with that. And so I think that for, if you really have this need to, and, and desire to help others, um, that's, yeah, that's what kind of got me excited and interested in it. Wow. And, and that's so much more abstract, right. And than what we're sort of used to in, in the Christian narratives of your family of origin of it's a linear path. Here's point A, here's point B it's heaven, um, where you will be with your family. There is eternal life, but rather it sounds like part of the ultimate purpose, part of the enlightenment can mm-hmm. happen here. Mm-hmm in our in our yeah yeah we call that so like nirvana would be like an awakening right like all of a sudden you like for me 
there was aha moments, right? We, you know, these moments of like, if I'm meditating or as I learn more through the Dharma, um, you know, all of a sudden my self-awareness becomes so much greater. And you had these, you know, these Nirvana moments are very temporary. um, But um, essentially, you know, once you do reach the state of complete release from samsara, you know, as a bodhisattva, um, you, you know, you're still this bodhisattva, right? It's not parinirvana where that happens at death. Got it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, you know, and parinirvana is much more final and that obviously is where you can become one of the, you know, you know we have 35 Buddhas. Okay. Maybe you could be 36 or <laughs> be the 20, there's 21 Taras. Maybe you get to be the 22nd Tara, right? So, um, you know, there have been others in the past who have, gone into parinirvana and become one of the taras of buddhas um and and we have these different you know um what i want to say um yeah i think i'll just end there i can't remember okay. what I had. I had a brain fart i'm sorry but that's perfectly fine because actually that leads right into our our next question and thank you for describing and explaining the difference between nirvana and, mm-hmm. and nirvana because that's often a very tricky um um, concept for students, the distinguishing between the two. And yes. maybe we can grab a link um, from you to put in the show notes that would help um, students understand the 36 Buddhas and the 21 Taras too. So that would be helpful. The 25, the 35 Buddhas. 35. Thank you. 35, That's yeah. right. Cause we were aiming towards 36. That's yeah. right. Well, the way I kind of, in just to kind of share, if people are like, what does that mean? It's kind of like your, um, your saints, Catholic saints. Ah, yes. I, I, I sort of attribute it to, you know, you would go to St. Patrick for um, certain reasons and you would go to St. Marie for certain reasons. And mm-hmm. so there's reasons that you would, you know, for us, it'd be like medicine Buddha or why I would go to green Tara versus white Tara. Mm-hmm. Um, they have uh, characteristics, I guess, that would help you through your life. And so that's sort of why you reach out to them. They have special um special powers, we'll say. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. Well, and speaking of that too, our, our last and final question, and then I know Gorban is going to hop on here to ask a quick question, but how has the pandemic affected you in your practices, your beliefs, your gathered community at the Kadampa Center? Is there a particular Tara uh, Buddha that you're, that you're looking toward right now and meditating upon for assistance or tell us how, what Buddhism looks like in the pandemic? Yeah. So one of the things we're doing right now is we've been practicing a lot of medicine Buddhas. Mm. Um, so medicine Buddha has a certain mantra and we've been doing a lot of chanting in our, um, our Sangha, our community. Um, so that has been helpful to practice medicine Buddha. I think also one of the things that from the Tibetan even culture, when we look at specifically Tibetan Buddhism is they have a very, um, I think they have a very healthy relationship with death Mm. and we as Americans don't. (laughs) Um, I think we kind of constantly think we're just going to beat it, even though, as you know, from your own writing and expertise that I love that you say there's a hundred percent mortality rate, Um, (laughs) you know, love to see somebody trying to beat that. Um, And so I think one of the things that's been really good is opening up to those conversations about death and becoming more aware and accepting of it um, and having that space to talk about those fears and anxieties. So I think for, particularly for me, I've been doing a lot more reading about it um, 
just to help me with my practice. So the Lam Rim, which is one of the texts in Buddhism I've been reading. And then Pima Chodron has a phenomenal book called When Things um, Fall Apart. Oh, yes. Um, yes. And then, of course, the D- J. Dana Trent's Dessert First. <laughs> um, can't not read that one. I mean, that's, you know. Life, life changing. Um, but the other that we've done, I think is thankfully, um, and Gorvani will appreciate this is technology. I think our technology gurus, um, if it wasn't for zoom, I, you know, and in our YouTube channel. So at the Kanapa center, we, we use both and our Geshela was actually stuck in Argentina. He flew to Argentina. He was giving talks and he was at an ashram there and he was actually stuck for many, many months and didn't fly back until this past month. So from March until September, he was, he was stuck there. Um, and so he could not get back until, like I said, a few weeks ago. And so he's finally back in Raleigh. But what was amazing, I think, about our monks is they teach us tolerance and acceptance. Mm-hmm. They teach us to accept what is, even through difficult times. Um, and they teach, teach us patience. So I think hearing from a monk of like, Hey, I know what it's like to be stuck. I'm there with you. You know, we're all in this together and, um, hearing to where he's like, how do you protect your peace of mind? And what do you need to do during this time to really, um, to really support your peace of mind. And so I think that was one thing. He also has a phrase where he says, you know, human life is precious life. Tibetans truly believe to be human is like the ultimate. Um, But he says, it's not perfect though. So it's precious life, but it's not a perfect life. And we need to like accept that. So I think that's what we've been really doing and practicing in our community. Wow. Gosh, and that comes full circle back to the ultimate reality of the four right. truths. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Like it is, there is suffering. And um, before we wrap up with our words of wisdom for the students, Gauravani's going to hop on with a quick question for you. Hey, Dr. Sanderson. Um, if there, hey, If there are students who are interested in exploring the differences between Buddhism and Hinduism, because um, there seems to be to be a lot of commonalities between mm-hmm. what um, concepts or terms or ideas would you encourage them um, to take a look at? Well, I think one that we, you and I have probably talked about is the, is, is the idea of God. Um, and I know in Hinduism, um, you know, there is a God, um, there is a supreme Godhead. I think in Buddhism, uh, we would say the idea of God is in the mind, mm-hmm. you know? So for, for me, I would just kind of say, if you feel like there's a God, great, like there's a God. Um, if it puts comfort in your, uh, you know, great, but we don't have an actual uh, being, if you will, that, you know, we are saying is God. So that, that would probably be the one, you know, theistic versus non-theistic approach. The other is the idea of the soul or the self. Um, I think in, you know, Hinduism, there is the, the, what is it? The Atman, is that correct? Am I saying that right? Skorabani? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And so the idea of this, this, this consciousness that you actually have a consciousness that is an identity of self versus we have the idea of emptiness where there is no self. Mm -hmm. It's, it's really an ever flowing energy. Um, And so those probably are the two biggest differences. Um, I would also say with the ultimate reality piece Mm -hmm. that 
you know, one of the things we, we do agree that there is an ultimate reality where we, how we describe it or define it, I think is a little different. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a, you know, one of my favorite uh, master Buddhist um, uh, is a Shanti Deva. Mm-hmm. And he talks about an ultimate reality, but is basically says, because we are in this human state, we are flawed in our biases and therefore cannot truly define what is ultimate reality. Mm. And I think that there's some truth to that in the sense that how many people can say they've died, experienced it and come back to explain it. Um, you know, not a whole lot of folks, at least that I'm aware of that can say, Oh yeah, let me show you what it looks like. Yes. There's this big bright light. And then I can go here and there. Um, but I think that one of the things he says is there is an ultimate reality. We just, don't have the capacity to define it in this state. Right. So yeah. Perfect sense, right? Because we're this is a finite, finite brain. And and thank mm-hmm. you so much for drawing the the differences because you you hit exactly on what we cover in our lectures in terms of theism and non-theism and Atman mm-hmm. versus unatman. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. Any follow-up, Scorvani? This is great. And we ask, as you know, having been in the classroom, we ask each of our guest practitioners to offer a brief words of wisdom for our students mm-hmm. as they continue their learning in REL 110 and beyond. Mm-hmm. What are your words of wisdom for them? So my words of wisdom, the first one is um, just be open and explore. Um, you don't have to figure it all out today. It is a journey and who knows where and what faith speaks to you. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would definitely say is just try something new and, you know, if it works for you at that time in your life, continue that path. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't try something else. Um, because what, again, go back into the Buddhist idea of emptiness and ever changing, you are an ever changing uh, being at this time and your needs and where you want to go or explore are going to be different. And so um, don't hesitate in trying something new and venturing out and trying a new faith. Um, it, it'll help you grow in the long run. And it also even, I think, help your own emotional well-being in the long run. So I would definitely say that. I think the other piece of advice too kind of goes with the philosophy of a Buddhist with the middle way is all too often in our society, we get really attached and hung up into uh, one extreme or the other. And I think that try to be a little less um, one direction or the other and try to kind of seek the middle path, um, meaning don't overdo it and don't uh, de- deprive yourself. So I think that is what I would say in life is there's, there's definitely a happy medium somewhere and find that for you. Those are great words of wisdom. In fact, they are so amazing students that will be on your midterm. <laughs> <laughs> you have listened to the end of the podcast. That was amazing, Dr. Sanderson. We are so thankful that you're here. Thank you so much for being with us on Array of Faith. And we're grateful for you and for your wisdom. And we'll talk to you again soon. This is the Array of Faith podcast, shedding light on the beauty in our faith, spiritual and religious differences. I've been your host, J. Dana Trent, professor of world religions at Wake Tech Community College in Raleigh, North Carolina. Thank you for joining us.